<laughs> well, good morning. Um, yes, as Bob pointed out, this is our final um, sermon as we preached over five Sundays through the subject of family, different aspects, looking at hospitality, how to disagree well, spiritual parenting and so on. Um, just to explain what's going to be happening from next week, we are having another month of prayer throughout March. Can I have a whoop? Yes. Um, Last year, um, as you recall, we went through four weeks of prayer, commencing on each Sunday on a different subject and then praying through different things during the week. The plan is there will be videos coming out next, next week onwards, week after next onwards, um, just to encourage you during the week for if you can access them through social media or for your small group leaders to show you, just to help you during the week know what to pray into and how. Um, so next week, um, Mick will be launching the... Um, I won't be here, I'll be in, um, in Colchester, I'll be preaching up at Redeemer Colchester with Hugh Pierce and the gang, it'll be great to spend time with them. But um, Mick's going to be launching our March Prayer Month, um, talking about praying together, uh, about the value of corporate prayer and the value of praying together and through the week we'll be seeking different ways to, to do that. Uh, the week after will be the 8th of March, um, we're going to be focusing on praying for our community, praying for Herne Bay and the region to help us. We've got Sir Roger Gale, our local MP. He'll be joining us for the morning. Not for any partisan reason. There is no endorsement involved. Uh, It's apolitical. But simply he's going to help us know the needs of Herne Bay and therefore how we can respond, how we can pray for them. And on the morning we'll pray for the needs of Herne Bay but also then considering how we can practically help as well. Um, The week after we're going to be looking at different ways to pray and Andrew Benson's going to be uh, speaking that morning. Uh, she's a very creative lady, so she's looking at me with daggers now. Um, helping us learn how to, uh, different ways of praying, which include fasting, the subject of fasting. And our aim is on the Friday the 20th of March, we'll have a day of fasting as a church. We'll give you specific things to help you pray through, just to fix our eyes on God. Set aside food for just a short while and just go, do you know God? We, th- these are the things, as, as with our enough prayer initiative, it's the same thing. These are the things we've had enough of but we know you're more than enough. And actually, you can then break your fast with, it's likely going to be hot dogs, here in the evening at enough when we host that evening. So fasting during the day and then joining us and the rest of our Kent churches for enough in the evening. Uh, and then on the 22nd, we've got Carl Maidman from Tenterton. Many of you will know him as a good friend of ours. He'll be coming to speak on the subject of healing. And we're going to be seeking God for healing in various areas of our own lives and others. As well, so that's what's coming up. That's what's starting next week. Just so you know, um, I've got to say, last prayer month, last year, we had answers to prayer. One of which was Vibe. We we we'd had the door shut on a new venue. We knew we needed a new venue. We asked God for a new venue, and literally the day after that week of praying for a new venue happened, that very morning, I happened to bump into the owner, and the first words out of his mouth are, "I want you in." This this is an answer to prayer from our month of prayer last, last year. I'm expecting, I'm expecting big answers to big prayers this year as well. He's the God who can, he's the God who does. As we've seen in our own story, let's ask for big stuff and let's see what he does. Amen? Amen. Amen. So today, family part five, world changes amid the mundane. What do I mean by that? I'm bored. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you said that? Loads, probably. Sometimes, quite often, we get the feeling that, that life just feels average. Life feels 
mundane. It doesn't feel exciting. And we want a holiday or a party or a promotion or something to give it a boost, to get a thrill out of life, a bit of excitement. The trouble is, even those things we seek for excitement in life, they're, they're just here for a breath, aren't they? Really? And then in life, life inevitably just becomes ordinary again, actually. <laughs> That's the reason why it's called ordinary. That's what ordinary life actually really looks like. The reality is, life is not meant to be one series of exciting moments after the other. In fact, we'd be exhausted. <laughs> Being bored is a modern luxury. It's, it's actually a modern luxury. Boredom was pretty much non-existent until the late 18th century. When the Enlightenment gave way to the Industrial Revolution and so on, that's when boredom started coming because we had appliances that did things for us and we can sit there suddenly twiddling our thumbs, not knowing what to do next. Actually, until then, earlier in human history, our ancestors had to spend most of their days securing food and shelter and surviving and so on and so forth. Being bored is something that is new to our age, really. It's not always been around. Back then, it wasn't an option. And then what, what makes it worse, particularly these days, we've got the dangers of TV and social media and so on. They are brilliant things. I love them. They are great things, but we just need to be very aware of the downside because flicking through our timelines on social media, we see other people's supposedly glamorous lives whilst being painfully aware of our own raw, behind-the-scenes footage. And we get jealous and we think, oh, they've got excitement in their life, I haven't got that, and that kind of thing. It just feels like we're missing out. The reality is family, family life, both in the home and in church life, this is family as well, it's, um, it's an ongoing, very ordinary journey, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's comprised of commonplace moments which together actually do make a difference. And that's why we've called this today, World Changes amid the mundane. Life is not a movie. Alfred Hitchcock once said that movies are life with the dull bits cut out. <laughs> Brilliant. Trouble is, we so often, either unconsciously or consciously, we want our Christian lives to be without the dull bits. We're living for the big spiritual highs and those transcendent moments at Christian conferences and we want the big exciting answers to prayer and so on and so forth and they're good things but that's not just what life is all about they're not what we should just always be hunkering for it's an easy temptation just to be living for those big spiritual highs but as a result if that's all we're hankering after and getting fed up when we don't get them resentment boredom disappointment they can fester in our hearts can't they but God, he's made us to sleep, to eat, to work, to care for our families, to care for our neighbourhoods, to care for our bodies, and so on. And if those things matter to him, they should matter to us as well. So therefore, the ordinariness of life, it should be just as important to us as it is to God. We need to cherish it for what it is. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. It's a simple verse that Paul almost says in passing. Colossians 3, verse 23, it's up there. He simply says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, not just the big stuff, includes the little stuff. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How do we do that in the ordinariness of life? How do we do that 
well. Well, we're going to look at two things that I've put up here on the slide. Firstly, we're going to look at our attitude to each moment. Just briefly, we're just going to look at what I've called silver service. I'll explain that in a minute. Just our attitude to each moment as it comes our way. But then we're going to concentrate a little bit more on our attitude to the journey itself. Again, I've called it the wise plod. I'll explain a little bit more of that when we come to it. But before we look at our everyday, ordinary Christian walk, the journey itself, we do need to look at our heart attitude first. Because where our hearts lie in approaching the, the seemingly smaller things in life, how we, our attitude towards those moments makes a massive difference to how we view our circumstances and how we, review, how we respond to the journey ahead and while we're in, in it. Just put, put it this way. Think of restaurants. Okay, you think of restaurants. You get those staff who bring your food to the table and they just dump it in front of you. Yeah, we've all, we've all met them. But then you also get the other end of the scale, you get the silver service. That's what I've called it. So you get the silver service where you get the best cutlery and the best crockery and the best etiquette and the best general approach. I remember Mick was telling me he was at a silver service function and the waiter was on one side and had served someone and then comes all the way around him to serve him from the other side. And it was like, you could have just given it to me while you were there. But it's like, no, this is how we do it. We do it properly. We only serve from this side. It's silver service. There is an attitude to it that is quite exquisite. It's very careful. It's prepared. It's considered. It takes a lot of attention and care on the waiters and waitresses' behalf. Waiters' tips are very sticky etiquette, aren't they? It's like, how much should I give them? Do they deserve a lot or just a little? It's just, it gets quite political, doesn't it? Am I, and then you worry about how you're going to look if you're, if you're stingy. And, but, but there's this whole thing about, depending on the ser- waiter's service to you and their treatment of you is how much you should tip them. It's a big argument, isn't it? I'll bet you've met some great and terrible waiters and waitresses in your lives, yeah? Jenny remembers a, a waitress from our first wedding anniversary nearly 25 years ago. You still remember her well, don't you? She was licking her fingers at Europe. She was licking her fingers and all sorts, and Jenny had to complain to the manager. And that. I, forgot, I haven't got a clue. I've had a sleep since then. But Jenny's like, no, I remember her. She was, what she was doing behind the scenes, I spotted her. She was terrible. She can't let a member of staff get away with that. But then when they get the good waiting staff as well, when we were in California last year, there was this mad Italian guy who the restaurant was brilliant, the food was incredible, but he, he was absolutely bonkers, but he went above and beyond to make sure that our experience was second to none. He wanted to make sure that we had the best time in his restaurant. He didn't want to just rely on the restaurant itself and on the food. It was his attitude and his service that made all the difference. And the thing is, see, waiters, with that in mind, waiters aren't the ultimate responsible party. It's not their restaurant. But they can still make or break the experience. Does that make sense? I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a fascinating word that Paul uses in this letter. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. This church, he's writing to the church in Corinth. It's what we consider now as northern Greece. And he's writing to the church there because they've been started by one guy himself, Paul. He started the church, planted it. But then as he moved on, another guy called Apollos pastored the church in his absence. And now the church are arguing about who's better. Some are, I'm team Paul. I'm team Apollos. Yeah, Paul FC, Apollos United, who are, yeah, 
all this kind of stuff. They're having a big argument who's the better one. But Paul says this, verse 5, he goes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He said, actually, we've got different gifts and different roles, but actually we're both the same. He said, actually, we're servants. What's interesting is the word he uses there is related directly to the understanding of being a table waiter. It's about being a waiter. A table waiter at a restaurant or at a posh dinner party. He said, we're we're just God's waiters. That's what we are. He's saying, we as God's waiters, we get... We get to serve, which is a massive privilege, but also a weighty responsibility. We can make or break the experience for the people around us. See, waiters represent the establishment's owners. And we get to represent Jesus, the head of the church, in everything we do. Waiters don't own the restaurant. It's not theirs. They don't even cook the food either, do they? but they participate in the delivery of the feast. And we too, we can all be waiters, we are meant to be good waiters in the kingdom of God, willing to go the extra mile, caring about the little things, or actually we could also be rubbish ones who don't, can't we? I mean, for example, there's there's different areas of life this can apply to, this is right across the board, but for example, even just when it comes to sharing your faith, Sharing your faith in everyday life requires patience and care, and it is the little things, actually, that do make a difference. It's not just the big stuff. You can't just dump your belief on someone else and expect them to lap it up. It's like a waiter coming, on, coming along with this fantastic food and going, here you are. It's not very appetising, is it? There's a care in the delivery of the best food to make sure you get the best experience. And actually, we've got the best food on the planet when it comes to the good news of Jesus. Can we, do we just try and dump it in people's plates? Go, another one. Or do we take care and patience and preparation and consideration and looking after the small things as we do that? Just asking the question, how do we serve up this amazing food that's available for the people who need it? Some of them might even need us to cut it up a bit for them rather than just throwing a slab of meat at them. I'll help you out here. I'll make it appetising. Most conversion stories, most stories of people coming to know Jesus for themselves for the first time, those stories, 99% of them are birthed in ongoing relationships where they've been built over meals and over drinks and about being listened to and ministered to, it's about sharing everyday life. It's all these things which set the scene for the good food of the explicit good news of Jesus being delivered in its right time. It's a silver service attitude. It's about caring for the small things. That's just one example of of life. You can apply it to to many others, how we minister, how we serve, how we just work quietly in the background. All these little things make the difference for the kingdom of God. It's about having a silver service attitude in the first place, isn't it? But that's the thing. You see, because God's kingdom grows how? Overnight? In a crazy, exciting instant? Or... Maybe it's the other way. Mark chapter 4. I love this picture language that Jesus uses here about the kingdom. Mark 4, verse 30. Mark 4, verse 30. It really helps us here. It says, um, And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? 
It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You just need to understand what he's saying here. He's saying actually the kingdom of God starts with very humble beginnings. This mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. It's very humble beginnings. It's small. It's not, it's not seemingly exciting, is it? It's not exactly explosive. And it takes effort. It takes time. It, the farmer has to take it and sow it, or the gardener has to take it and sow it. And then over time, he says, it grows. It doesn't appear in an instant. It grows over time. And then the brilliant thing is, actually, the result is that it doesn't merely become the largest shrub in the garden. It becomes a home. So this, this, it becomes a place for the birds. It doesn't become just larger than all the other plants in the garden. It becomes a place for the birds to make their nests in. Actually, this is a picture of the kingdom. It's small humble, quiet, the smallest of small beginnings, but with time and care over time, it doesn't just even become the biggest thing, it becomes a home. It's a wonderful picture of the kingdom of God, isn't it? But he's already said it in context. You skip back at just a few verses. He repeats it in a different way, but well, this time he's repeated it. But he's already set the scene with verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You see what's happening here? Saying the farmer, he sleeps and rises, night and day. There's a plod, there's a daily grind, there's a routine, there's a rhythm. It's everyday, ordinary farming life. That's what he's doing here. And he says, uh, he said, then, then gradually over time you see the blade appear and then the ear appear and the full grain appear. The farmer's coming in and out of the field and he's observing the growth. Because he's a farmer, if he sees a weed, he's going to pull it up. And if he sees the soil is dry, he's going to water it. There's, there's a care and attention here and over time the, 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 the harvest gradually comes. It's not overnight. It's over time, with time, with care, with effort and consideration and so on. It's everyday mundane work. Then, finally, when the harvest has come, he gets to put in the sickle. Even that takes work. Jenny's dad and I have used a sickle in Bulgaria. It's not easy. <laughs> it's backbreaking. There's effort in even reaping the harvest. It doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen in an instant and it doesn't happen easily. There's, there's work and there's consideration. Time and work are what pay off. God's doing the clever hard work underneath the surface. The farmer in here says he doesn't even know how it happens. <laughs> you see, was it what, the end of verse 27? The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. That's the farmer. That's the expert. God's doing the really clever stuff, but he's asking us to participate and partner with him with time, with effort, with work. And it will pay off every single time. It's not a single exciting moment with fireworks and a loud soundtrack. It's an ongoing daily rhythm. When we think about it, you can compare it to parenting. It's the same thing. Parenting doesn't occur in just a few high moments. It's in the careful plod of years, isn't it? Which can, for the parents, feel very long. <laughs> can. We love you kids. But it does pay off in heaps, doesn't it? Quantity time with your kids 
makes a bigger difference than quality time. That's used as an excuse now in many ways. In fact, the phrase quality time <coughs> never appeared until 1977. Did you know that? It's a modern invention. Quality time did not appear until the late 70s. It never existed beforehand because society <coughs> was practiced in much closer community by nature. It's just our Western society has just fragmented, become more individual and, and so on, and busier and busier and busier. There was generally a, a less frantic busyness in life back then that we saw in the 70s, which is why the phrase came along. But actually, even more so, we're even crazier busy now. We just filled our lives up with stuff, haven't we? We live in this instant culture. We want stuff now. Amazon Prime. Click here, get it tomorrow. And when you do, and if you pay by PayPal, there's a little tick here to stay logged in for faster purchases. So you can get it in a few seconds quicker. Go, 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 go. Get your stuff now. We live in an age of instant information, instant communication, instant gratification, and all it does is just breed impatience. That's what it does. We've got to be so aware of this. We expect instant results. We just get this desire for that dose of dopamine in our brains that gets released in exciting moments. We get hooked on our own hormones. It's bonkers. That's what we're doing to ourselves. We just need to be very, very aware of what's happening. And otherwise, that what you get is just a breeding of resentment and disappointment and feeling bored. That's not what God set us apart for, is it? Just got to be really, really aware of this, really careful. Because despising what everyday life can look and feel like. It's a bit like you're going somewhere and you're driving and you've hit the M25, the world's biggest car park, and you hit that moment where you're in that traffic and it's come to a standstill. And you're like... The amount of times on Facebook I see a photo of a mass of unmoving cars in front of someone going, bring here for half an hour. Is it, have you seen those, you know, those photos? People, no, it's just me. It's just my friends. <laughs> just my friends seem to attract traffic. What's all that about? But it's like getting stuck in that traffic jam on the N25 and without fully appreciating the fact that actually we're, we're heading to a lifelong friend's house or we're heading to a concert at Wembley or we're heading to a holiday destination. The danger is we can forget what this is all about. We can just look at where we're at and just look around and we just see this unmoving traffic. We're just, this is grey, this is listless, this is frustrating, what's the point? And then thinking this is all there is, then this is all there is. Might as well just pitch up here and resent it for the rest of my life. Get my tent out, get my sleeping bag out. Isn't it? But actually, we need to realise it has immense purpose. We have a choice in that moment. Do we climb out and pitch up here and just get fed up with life and I'm bored and it's average and I wanted the exciting moments and they're not happening? Or do we practise the patient appreciation of this, there is a purpose in this and we will get there? I just need to be calm and patient and trust God for it. It's the same attitude. It's like the book of Acts is full of amazing, exciting moments. There's miracles, people rising from the dead, breakouts from prison, shipwrecks, thousands of people coming to Christ in one moment. There's these exciting single moments. But there are verses in between those big exciting passages that describe long periods of months and years. The book of Acts was written in a full, kind of extended, chronological way, it would be the most boring book on the planet with these spikes of exciting moments. It's because it's all been compressed for us to appreciate and learn from history. That we think, oh, I wish life was like the book of Acts. Well, yeah, sometimes you just stood around for four years. <laughs> it's, it's normal life in amongst the exciting bits of Acts. We've got, we've got to not forget. I'm not going to look at that through rose-tinted glasses and think, oh, it's all exciting then. Not all. 
Some of it was ordinary. Some of it was every day. Paul stayed for years in Ephesus, just every day, going in the halls of Tyrannus to talk about the gospel. Every day. In the morning, when it was cool, he'd make his tents. In the afternoon, when it was hot, he'd go to the halls of Tyrannus to have a chat. And then he'd go back home, do a bit more tents, have some dinner, go to sleep. For years. That was normal life. He didn't resent it. He knew it was for a purpose. Silver service. Who's heard of um, Scott of the Antarctic? Yeah? Who's heard of Amundsen? Few, few. It's an interesting contrast between the two of them, isn't there? So just over 100 years ago, if you're not aware of the full story, just over 100, 110 years ago or so, um, Scott and Amundsen, uh, Robert, Robert Falcon Scott, brilliant name, and Roald Amundsen, they were both determined to be the, the first guy to the South Pole. And um, they, left, they left their... Um, their base camps at the same time. And Scott hit the venture hard. He went hard. He was going fast with minimum supplies, trying to keep the load light. Go, 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 go. Amazon went really slowly. They took three tons of supplies for just five blokes. Way too much, about five times what they needed, but they took it. So Scott was speedy, Gonzalez Scott was racing ahead. Amazon, slow coach Amazon, it's like hair on the tortoise. He just plodded. Scott was using mechanised sleds, this brand new invention. Whereas Amundsen, he even turned down ponies. He just said, we're just going to have dogs pulling sleds. That's what we're going to do. And Scott aimed for as many miles as possible each day. Weather permitting, if we could hit, I don't know, 30, 40 miles, we'll, do every, we'll squeeze out every little bit of mileage we possibly can. Weather permitting, get as much as possible. Whereas Amundsen was like, if we hit 20 miles and the weather's good, we'll stop. And if on a bad day we've only hit 15, it's like, guys, we've only got another five miles to do. Let's just push on a little bit more. It'll be okay. But if it's a really good day and we could have done double, no, nah, just do 20. We'll stop. We'll rest. It's just that careful, wise plod. As a result, slow coach Amundsen made it to the South Pole a whole month before Speedy Gonzalez Scott did. And actually, he was back home in Norway merely a week after Scott finally made it to their target as well. And in fact, Scott and his team never made it home. See the big difference in the value of the wise plod? It doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But what it does bring is quiet, life-giving results. It gets us home. Just a few examples before I finish. Just, um, I've already mentioned parenting, but as our attitude to the workplace can make a big difference. Quite often it's like, how's work? Huh, pays the bills. I've said it. But is that a good Christian attitude about where God's placed me? I'm not there to pay the bills. That's part of it. But surely I'm there for something else. It's about God's kingdom, isn't it? It's about sharing the good news, pointing to Jesus. If God has placed you somewhere for a current season, sometimes there's time to move on. I'm not questioning that. Sometimes it's very obvious you need to apply for other jobs. But while you're there, if God has placed you somewhere in a workplace for a current season, is your focus on what it isn't? Or is your focus on what a faithful, quiet service might reap? It's a big difference. And we don't always think like that, do we? It comes to church as well. Same principle applies to church life, church community, gathering together. The Bible says do not neglect meeting together. This, Sunday mornings, may not always seem exciting. I know we've got two screens. We're a two-screen family. That's very exciting. But generally speaking, this is, this is ordinary Sundays. 
We may not be the biggest church in the world. We may not be the loudest, shoutiest, flashiest church in the world. And I'm more than all right with that. Because that's not what it's all about, is it? It's in the regular staying within each other's orbits that we get to see and be seen. How easy is it for people to slip our mind because we haven't seen them for a while? The value of just not neglecting to meet together means we're, we're in each other's orbits, we're in each other's conscious radars, and you remember to seek out for people and to minister to them because you're aware of what's going on in their lives. You've had a chat this week. You can pray for them. You can meet up during the week. You'll be more intentional because you remember to be intentional in the first place. Half the time I'm not intentional it's because I forgot to be. It's ridiculous. I'm not intentional enough to be intentional. But the more we meet together, the more community binds together and we do more together. We build each other up. We seek God together. There's value in it. It's this ongoing rhythm. If our society is ruled by feelings, yeah, I feel this way or I identify it this way. It's built on how I feel and therefore that's going to command my decisions, my choice, my behavior, my actions, everything I do, that's going to dictate it. If our world is built on feelings now, then actually we get to go, you know, as God's church, despite me not feeling like it, I'm going to go anyway. Because I'm going to, get, I'm going to let Jesus eclipse my feelings this morning. I'm going to meet with his people this morning. This is something we get to teach to our kids. Do you know what? I don't feel like it either. But I'm going to go. I'm going to meet with Jesus together with his people at the same time. There is value in that. That's the wise plod of ongoing church community life that God does massive things with. We need to embrace it for what it is, rather than looking for what it isn't. Does that make sense? It's in that taking that step forward each week in that wise plod that will bring us home safely together. One more. I'm going to talk about Bible reading and so on. How long have I got? Shall I get away with it? I'll get away with it. Let me talk about Bible reading. Bible reading doesn't always feel exciting, does it? Reading the Bible. And you go... Well, I was hoping for that big, amazing moment where I'd know which verse God wants me to work with and see something brand new every day. Not always. Sometimes you might. Not always. Sometimes you read it and go, I don't really know what to do with that. Now I've got to pray, and I don't really know how to... Uh, okay. It just feels very average sometimes, doesn't it? There is, for most of us, reading the Bible, it's, it's even hard to concentrate doing it, doesn't it? But um, I heard someone, there was a guy called Bill Huang, a brilliant surname. He, uh, he describes the average Christian's experience of reading and feeding on God's word as being like watching previews of a movie, trailers, clips, or sometimes having someone else explain the plot of the movie to them, but never actually sitting down and watching and experiencing the entire movie. It's quite interesting. What he's saying is how many of us have actually read the Bible as a whole? Sometimes the thought of that is quite daunting. But he said, actually, one to two hours a week means you can read the Bible in a year. When you add it up, that's not huge. I'm sure I know there's lots of people here who have read through the Bible in one hit. If you've never done it, give it a go. You'll be surprised. You get the big picture of what God's up to. There is also value in seeking commentaries and writers who help you dig into the individual verses as well. Seek people here who can help you with that. Those are the two extremes, and sometimes it's just reading different scriptures. Sometimes it's the the um, verse for the day. I'd be aware of where your verse for the day. It's like a vitamin pill. I'd, I'd eat a meal. I'm sorry, but there's, there's a place for them, but don't let that just be your Bible reading. It's always out of context sometimes and, and so on and so forth. But something I've discovered recently, 
is actually a middle ground. Oh, there's, place, there's a place for all of those. Try all of those things. But it's not just that. There's something else I come across. There's a preacher from the early 19th century called James Gray. And he talks about mastering books of the Bible. And what he does, he suggests this with books that aren't too big, too small. So books of up to a dozen, dozen chapters or so. Not the big Jeremiah's or anything. But he says there are books, particularly Paul's letters and so on. So you can learn to master them. What we tend to do, if we, go, we feel I need to get to know Galatians well. So you read Galatians and you work your way through it and you, have, you, have, you look up things to help you work it out. And, or you, um, uh, you, you ask God which verse to stop at and this kind of thing. And I've only done one verse today, 17 today. And you've done it a few times. You haven't really got much more juice out of it. You've got some stuff out of it, time to move on. James Gray says, don't stop there. He says, what you do, you just read... Don't not wait for what verse to stop at. You just read at natural, normal reading speed. Read through this book. And you might read a few chapters. You might read all, all of the letter in one hit. It might take a few days. But you just read at natural, normal reading speed. Just keep reading it. And just keep reading it. Over however many weeks. They said, normally, by the time you're on your about seventh or eighth pass, you're thinking, I've done this now. And that's normally the point where we go, right, what shall I read next? Put it to one side. And he said, that's the, bit, that's the moment when you must not stop. He said, just keep going through. And keep going through. And he said, normally it's about the 15th read-through. Might take you months. 15th read-through, suddenly it just comes alive. He said, like you wouldn't believe. The rich treasures you start unearthing because suddenly you're starting to master this book of the Bible. He said, it just unlocks it. I'm giving it a go. Hebrews, I've been through it, I don't know how many times now since the new year. It's just starting to come alive. It's worth it. There's value in digging into the verses. There's value in reading the whole Bible. But there's a place in between that sometimes we don't always do well. Give it a go. Mastering the book of the Bible. Choose whatever book up to... I've gone for Hebrews. It's a baker's dozen. He recommends no more than 12. I'm having that. But just read through over a few weeks, a few months, and just see what God does. But when you feel it's getting dry, that's the moment to press on, not move on. Give it a go. Let's see what God does. But there's value in this wise plod of getting to know God's revelation through his scriptures. One more thing, when it comes to giving, the wise plod of financial giving. One-off collections have been very exciting, have been brilliant, have been appropriately and completely valid here at Beacon Church. We've had some amazing one-off collections for Pathways from Poverty, for Vibe, for moving to Briary, for releasing me into full-time ministry and so on. You guys have been really generous and those one-off Moments have been amazing. But far, far more, and I mean, I've done the figures hundreds of times more, hundreds of times more has been given in the faithful, monthly, regular giving. So we mustn't, we mustn't despise our direct debits or what we put in the box. Just all those seemingly smaller things actually go further much, much further than even those exciting one-offs we, we remember and we, we recall. Do you remember last time we did that? Let's try again for another one. There are places and moments for doing that. But don't let that dismiss the regular ongoing given, uh, giving because as a result, for mission, we've given hundreds of times more than in those singular moments. It's the same principle. Right, now I'm aware of time, ironically enough. But Jesus... He never rushed, did he? Jesus never rushed. He knew exactly where he was headed. He knew it would all unfold according to the Father's timing. 
didn't he? He didn't have a massive appointments and have to get the quickest transport in between places and so on and so forth. And even before his time of ministry, the one who had created the very galaxies has spent 30 years practicing a carpenter and stonemason's trade, quietly in the background, in obscurity. And the big key to how, he, how easily and successfully he did that was simply knowing who he was. And he embraced the ordinary of it, didn't he? So your worth is not found in how cool or exciting or dramatic your story and your everyday life are. Your worth's not found in that. Your worth is found in knowing that you're a child of God just as much as the next Christian. And it's in this bed of everyday, ordinary life, wisely and quietly plodding on one foot after the other. It's there that we can change the world and see it turned upside down for Jesus. Amen? It's the kingdom that has small, humble beginnings with time and effort become something that isn't just the biggest thing, but is a home. That's what we get to be a part of. We get to become world changers amid the mundane. Now, even that word mundane can sound boring. There's a feel, there's tangible, there's something about that word. It's like, oh, really? But just think about this. <clears throat> Committed, ongoing, biblical Parenting, committed, ongoing, biblical marriage, committed, ongoing, biblical community, one anothering, working together, doing family together, pointing to Jesus together, proclaiming his excellencies in our conduct and our conversations in the workplace, in the home, in our neighborhoods, faithfully following Jesus in the daily grind is actually an act of rebellion. Compared to the way the world revolves, that's the most rebellious thing on the planet. Alice Cooper, the rock star, he once said that sex, drugs and rock and roll, that's easy. True Christianity, that's rebellion. It's going against the way of the world. And since that weekend, when God himself, Jesus, he died on a cross and burst from the tomb, releasing us from from the slaving bonds of sin and death, we're suddenly free to do this to the utmost. From that moment, a revolution began. It's what the church is. It's revolutionary. It's the king's revolution. And it's one that is still turning the world upside down to this day. And we're a part of that. And in the long term, that's far more jaw-dropping than any bunch of euphoric moments can ever muster. Amen? Richard Burgess, a friend of mine in Ashford, he says this, We can't expect the extraordinary unless we're willing to walk through the ordinary. Should we worship our amazing king? Should we worship the one who made it possible? Let me pray while Pete gets ready and he and Bob can work out what to do next. Pete can work out what to do next. Brilliant. Good delegation. Let me just pray. Lord, Lord, we thank you that we are fickle humans, yet you know what's best for us. Lord, we thank you that our hearts are so easily looking for the shiny bling of life, but you know where the true rich treasures are. <laughs> I'm just very aware of the picture of um, uh, me- the, uh, the treasure hunters with metal detectors. They don't go looking in the clean places, they look in the muddy fields and the, and the windswept beaches, don't they? The rich treasures are found in other places that aren't shiny and new. Lord, we... 
Help us to settle our hearts to find the rich treasures in everyday, ordinary home life, church life, work life. Lord, we want to truly be embracing what it means to be a part of your kingdom that while it has humble beginnings and does take effort, becomes more than just the biggest thing, but becomes a home. Lord, you've brought us into that home. We want others to be brought into that home. Help us, Lord, our children, our friends, our neighbours, our workmates. Lord, we want them to be swept into that home as well, to make their nests within it, just like we've been able to. But help us not to, not to resent the, the small things. Let us not despise the small things, but to cherish them for what they are. We give all this up to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.